First of all, I want to just welcome you. Thank you for being here today. Those of you that are visiting with us, we are glad to have you. Um, it's our desire to love everyone that walks through the doors well. So if you are a member here and you see people that are sitting around you sometime before everybody gets up and walks out of here, I would encourage you to love people well and uh, get over your shyness and stick out a hand and say hi. Um, Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 10, continuing our study through 1 Corinthians, talking about being the church. And um, if you don't know, Larry's going to be gone the next two weeks, so this message is the first one. We're going to work through a major chunk of 1 Corinthians 10, and then we'll finish up next week. Um, Larry's oldest daughter got married last night. It's a big hoorah and party. Great, great, great thing. Um, can I just encourage you real quickly? If you're a parent in our congregation and there's a wedding in our congregation, bring your kids. Sit in here and explain exactly what is going on. It's an amazing thing. I don't know how many questions I fielded yesterday, but every time it was an easy, easy illustration to the gospel. Every time. And Larry makes it really easy when he preaches at a wedding, particularly his own daughter. So um, it was really good, and I would encourage you in that. One last thing before we get into our text today. If you um, also just want to encourage those that helped out with Runner's Camp this past week, what an amazing event, what an amazing thing to see all of those children there, but not only just the children, but all the body of Christ serving. Um, It's just absolutely amazing. And uh, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for serving our community well, serving one another well. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. So well done. Well, let's pray and we will get into our text today. Lord Jesus, we do need you. We are needy every hour, every day. You are our only hope, our only help, our only rescuer, our only savior. You alone do we need. So today, we come before you as a congregation of hungry and needy people. And we bow to you today, humbly. And we ask that you would do serious heart work on us today, that our idols would be smashed and the things that we worship other than you would be put to death today. And we know that only you can do that. So we ask you, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the truth of your word, to have your way with us today. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, pagan sacrifices um, to idols in Corinth were a tough issue for the church. And we've seen that throughout our study of 1 Corinthians. Do you eat meat used in 
sacrifices when it's resold in the market? Do you go to dinner in a person's home when you know that the meat they're serving was part of an idol sacrifice? Can you participate in the ceremonies even though you're a believer? How do you make sense of that? Idolatry was not just a mere theoretical issue in Corinth. It was real life, everyday problem. So I have a question for you to start our time today. Would you say that idolatry is more than a theoretical issue of our day? Would you say that it is one of the tough issues that you struggle with on a daily basis? Does it connect to your life in a real, tangible way? Do you see it where you live? Do you see it where you work? You know, when we travel to other cultures, it's very easy for us to see the idolatry in other cultures. Sometimes it's very hard for us to see it in our own because this is just who we are and the way that we live and what we do, and we're blinded to that. You see, I don't, to be honest with you, when I go to Harris Teeter, I'm not really asking the question whether or not the meat I'm getting ready to buy was sacrificed to idols that day. I, I, I'm really not, that's not a bearing question on me. I'm not scanning every food that walks into the small group picnic to make sure that it somehow it hasn't been tainted. So how do we connect a passage where Paul says, flee from idolatry, do not be idolatrous? How do we connect that to us today? Because that's the key theme in our text today. It holds the whole thing together. We're going to do this a little different. We're going to bounce all around through this passage, and I promise we'll cover it all when we're said and done. But if you look at a few passages, this is what Paul says through, a few verses through our passage, this is what Paul says. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Verse 19, The food offered to idols, I'm not saying it's anything, for an idol is anything. Then our passage next week, verse 28, he says, But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. So running throughout the entire chapter, we have this concern about idolatry. So we need to figure out what's being said and how that actually applies to you and I. We need to have an understanding of idolatry and the biblical term. What does that look like? What, is it, what, what does it look like through Paul's eyes? You see, he understands humanity's original sin as an act of idolatry. Human beings, according to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, were made to worship and serve God and to rule over created things in God's name instead of living for what he created them to be. Romans 1 tells us that they, humankind, exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Pastor Tim Keller writes, instead of living for God, we began to live for ourselves, for our work, for our material goods. We reversed the original intended order. And when we began to worship and serve created things, paradoxically, the the created things came to rule over us. Instead of being God's vice regents ruling over creation, now creation masters us. We are now subject to decay, disease, and disaster. You see, idolatry really is the breaking of the first two commandments that God gave his people. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in, that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The great reformer Martin Luther, when he studied and thought through the Ten Commandments, he noticed that the first two commandments referred to idolatry and then the other eight commandments were things like sexual sin and stealing and lying and murder. And he concluded that if you never broke the first two commandments, you wouldn't break any of the others. This is vitally important for us to understand our passage today. And I need you to listen to me really quickly. This is of vital importance. Because you have to understand what Luther was saying. He is saying, if you're a person who drinks too much, eats too much, lives a sexually immoral life, steals, lies, cheats, gets violent, whatever, struggles with anger, like me, then your real issue is not those sins. Although they're issues. The root issue that you're dealing with, what underlies all of that, is the fact that you are an idolater. You see, when I get angry, it's not because I'm so righteous and everybody else is so sinful, even though that's what I would like to think. That's not it. I get angry because I'm an idolater who loves to be respected and for things to go smoothly and efficiently by my definition. And when they don't, then there's judgment and wrath. You see, Ken Sandy writes in his book, Peacemaker, an idol is not simply a statue of wood, stone, or metal. It is anything we love and pursue in place of God. And can also be referred to as a false God or a functional God. In biblical terms, an idol is something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters or rules us. You see, idolatry in the view of the Bible and in Paul's mind is enslavement to something that we love. You love your spouse, you love your kids. Some of us love our job. 
You love your health. You love your beauty. You love your pets. You love your cars. You love your financial security, your wardrobe, your gadgets, your neighborhood. You love our country. All these things are fine and good. But when these good things become elevated to the place where they're objects of worship, then all of a sudden these things begin to rule us, demanding more and more of our time, more and more of our money, more and more of our life. They become idols. And when we break the first two commandments, there are devastating effects. Tim Keller goes on to write, if your center of your life and identity is your spouse or your partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life and identity on the idol of family and children, you will try to live your life through your child until they resent you and have no self of their own. At worst, you will abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life and identity on the idol of work and career, you will be driven, you will be a workaholic, a shallow person. At worst, you will lose your family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on the idol of money and possessions, you will be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You will be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will inevitably blow up your life. In all of our idolatry, we deny Christ, the pure worship of the one who can truly save us from our sin, from our idols, and from ourselves. The Bible does not present a middle option somewhere between faith in the one true God and idolatry. Although the Corinthians would have loved that and most of us would have loved that, to be honest. Somewhere in between, a foot in both worlds, just safe, but get to do what I want to do. That would be great. You see, the Corinthians fell to the same deception that most of us fall to. They would say, I go to church, I take communion, I've been baptized, I'm one of God's people, I'm good. I'm one of the good guys. I'm not an idolater. I just occasionally dabble in some other things. In other words, they would say, since I eat spiritual food and drink spiritual drink, I'm immunized from the effects of participating in an idolatrous worship of my day. I've got the get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, in Paul's mind, that is simply dumb. Absolutely dumb. Because the truth of the spiritual dynamic that is taking place is this. Whatever we worship... We share in, and we will eventually serve. Worship and service are always inextricably placed together. Hence the reason we do 
this thing called study serve so that what we worship, we also serve. So we serve the body, we serve others out of a heart of worship for God because of what he's done for us. It's a simple dynamic. We will worship and serve what most captures our imagination and our heart. That's what we will serve. That's what we will worship. There's no middle ground on either side of saved by grace through faith in Christ or you reject Christ's salvation and indulge in idolatry and self-salvation. And this is the reason why Paul wrote the warnings that he did. So turn with me to the first seven verses of chapter 10. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized in Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The word for at the beginning of our passage points us, ties the section before it to this one. And Paul's talking about the dangers and warnings of disqualification, that they're real. Paul does not want these Corinthian believers to be unaware or ignorant. It's a subtle jab to their claims of knowledge. But ignorant of what? Ignorant of the fact that high privilege does not mean a guarantee to final blessing. You see, Paul takes them on a history lesson. What's what's so important about a history lesson? What's so important about a history lesson? History provides a terrain for us to have moral contemplation. For us to look at someone else in the past and how they fared against real complexities and real things that pressed on them. Not fiction, but real. Those who weathered well can provide inspiration and wisdom to us. Those who didn't can provide correction and warning. You see, history teaches by example. And Paul is not concerned with the Corinthians or you and I retaining a bunch of historical facts. He is very concerned, however, that history would not repeat itself. One of his main aims throughout this letter is to get the Corinthians to realize where they are in God's great drama. Where are they in the big story? Like actors that have come onto the stage in the middle of a play, they need to figure out what act they're in and what has transpired beforehand. They need to discover what has happened so far, how the plot is working out, how the people who played their characters in previous acts managed 
to get it wrong. So he tells them the story of the exodus of Egypt. And at least he tells selected pieces of it. Highlights, carefully phrased in such a way as to remind the Corinthians of the behavior of their spiritual predecessors. God's people. And to say, you of course are in the same position now. You see, God had delivered Israel from the Egyptian bondage of slavery. He had led them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then when all hope was lost, when they were hemmed in against the Red Sea and the Egyptian army barreling down on them, God parted the sea. Have you ever just stopped to think about like if you were standing there? Moses raises his staff and all of a sudden, that should get your attention. That doesn't happen every day. And they walk across on dry land. God God redeemed his people from slavery. He set them free. text says that they were baptized into Moses. What the heck does that mean? I've been struggling with that all week. Meaning, and I, and I think this is it, but you know, we could, we could debate this if you'd like. Um, but I'm re- I really think what Paul is saying is that through the waters of redemption, they had been identified and connected with their spiritual leader in the community of the people. And it had initiated them into the people and the fellowship. And that, that was what happened. That was the blessing of God upon them. To deliver them from slavery and then to set them up as the people of God. Not to, not to wander by themselves, but to have a leader and someone to follow. And God to speak to him and then speak to the people. It's amazing. It's amazing blessing. And if that wasn't enough, God supernaturally fed them in the wilderness, giving them manna from heaven and water to drink from a rock. They were nourished by God at a time when they they would have surely died if it weren't for God. And in verse 4, Paul is very clear that Christ was present with them, redeeming, nourishing them, sustaining his people in the desert. How many were under the cloud? Look at the text. How many passed through the sea? How many were baptized? How many ate and drank? All. Every one of them. Every one of them received the blessing of God. Yet how many of them actually made it into the promised land? Very few. Actually, the only adults that really made it in were Joshua and Caleb. Because of disobedience, sin, idolatry, caused most of them to fall under the judgment in the wilderness. Then, 
verse 6 and 7. We see these words. Now these things took place as examples for us. That we may not desire evil as they did. Literally lust after evil. Don't be idolaters. Don't sit down to eat and drink of God's provision and then go out and play. Does 23,000 get your attention? 23,000 people in one day coming under the judgment of God because they ate and drank of God's provision and they went out and did what they wanted to do. Men, that should get your attention. The fact that you can be easily swayed to sexual immorality through the computer or through whatever And you can serve that idol and think that you are not going to be judged. That's a scary thing. There are people dying daily, spiritually, physically, because they live in ignorance of this fact and think because they have tasted of God's provision, because they have participated in some miraculous event, had a piece of crusty bread and a shot of grape juice, they can go out and play and do whatever they want to. All I had ringing in my head this week was the old hymn, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It, Prone to Leave the God I Love. I have an idolatrous heart. And every single day, it is prone to wander. And prone to leave the God I love. But these things, verse 10 and 13, were written down for you as an example for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. you think you're standing firm, take heed, lest you fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. You may be able to endure it. See, the trap I hear most times in my office is this. It's someone walks in and they believe that their sin struggle, their ongoing temptation is unique. That nobody can really understand their struggle, their idol, their situation. But Paul says, no, absolutely not. It is the same temptation that is common to all men and women around the world, and it is idolatry. That's the temptation, that you would worship yourself or something else 
other than God. And in many shapes and forms, but the root is always the same. It's always the same. And God has given you a way out. And he will continue to give you a way out. Because God is faithful. If there's anything that should be carved on our hearts and our faces and in front of us at all times, it should be carved into our memory and our imagination, is the fact that he is faithful. For he has already provided himself to be. He's proved it. He has proved himself faithful. He has provided a way out. He has provided a way out for you from your idolatry. You see, Paul spoke earlier in our study in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The Messiah, the Passover lamb, the one whose death has brought about the final true exodus from slavery of sin and death to freedom. He has come. He has been sacrificed. His whole point, Paul's point here, is that Christians are the true exodus people. But the question remains, will we learn from history? Will we learn? Will we see ourselves as playing this part in God's drama? Do we really believe that true salvation comes to us through Jesus Christ alone, not through anything or anyone else, not through your idol through the things you look at for your fulfillment and rescue, they, none of them, none of them will provide that for you. They will promise you everything, but none of them can rescue you. None of them can deliver you from the slavery of sin. Jesus saves us from the punishment due us for our sin, but he also saves us from ourselves because our hearts are deceitful and wicked and idolatrous, and we worship everything and anything but Jesus. We settle for saviors made in our own image, formed and fashioned by our own sinful desires, our wants, and our fears. And Paul has one word for us, flee. Run. Talking about a little insect, we're talking about running. We're talking about running fast. When's the last time you fleed something? I have one vivid image of that. Backpacking in Pisgah National Forest, taking some kids, had a bunch of tents set up. I got up early in the morning, walked up on a ridge to read the Bible and pray. I was coming back down. Um, nature called veered off the trail a little bit. And there were a bunch of blackberry bushes. It was June. They were popping. And I looked over and I saw two ears go like this. I thought, that's kind of strange. Um, Kept looking. 
paying attention to what was going on, and uh, there was a huge black bear right there. And I guess I had woken him. He had probably eaten too many berries and decided to take a nap. Um, I don't know that I've ever run that fast in my entire life. I didn't stick around to look and see what he was doing, where he was going, you know, get big like they tell you and go, you know, and scare him off. Uh Uh-uh. Wrong answer. No, I'm fleeing as fast as I can. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't look around. Don't examine these idols. Flee. Treat them for what they are. Treat them for the infectious, deadly disease that Christ came to save you from. Flee. Run. Leave behind whatever you have to. Run toward the cross. You see, he says this. He says, I speak as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. We are all partakers of the one bread. Worship of God and pagan worship are incompatible. And Paul's argument is simple. When you worship, it is not the elements of the Lord's table that you worship. When you worship an idol, it's not meat on an altar. It's not a wooden statue. It's not a stone statue. No, it's the spiritual reality behind those things. You see, at the Lord's table, when we come to the Lord's table and we partake of bread and a little grape juice, what's that about? It's actually happening. It's actually happening in your heart. What are you doing? You coming for a mid-service snack? What's the deal? Are you worshiping a loaf of bread and some juice? What, what, what is that? You are involved in a participation and a sharing in the broken body of Christ and his blood spilt for you and your sin. And you're doing that with other believers. And you're connected to one another through your belief in this. Not the bread and the juice, but the spiritual reality that God sent his own son to die, to shed his blood for you and for his body to be broken, that you may be free you may once again do what you were created to do, to worship God, to glorify Him, 
and to enjoy him forever. And it is that spiritual reality and though the power of that working in your life that takes place when we do that. Well, the same transaction, the same spiritual transaction happens when we give ourselves over to idols. There is something behind your idol. There's nothing wrong with 55 inches of plasma. That's not the ticket. That's not the big deal. There's nothing wrong with you driving a nice car. Unless you go into a deep depression after somebody at Target bangs you in the door. By the way, Larry's always instructed me that that is um, God being merciful to me and taking the God out of my vehicle. I think we could apply that. I think that's good. But there is a spiritual interaction, fellowship that happens when you worship your idol. And it is the demon behind that idol that you then fellowship with and partake of and share of. Verse 21 says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't worship God and worship an idol at the same time. There's no middle ground. You either are an idolater or you're a worshiper of Christ. There's no no middle ground. Do you you understand what Paul is trying to tell us? He says, look to history. The people of God. Walked through the Red Sea, ate spiritual food, did all that. They then gave their hearts to idols and died in the wilderness. So the application for us today. Every moment of your day is threatened by idolatry. John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb an expert in inventing idols. You kill one and one shows up on the it just, it's amazing. Our sinful nature just continually continually churns them out. It's not one thing it's another. So, do you know what yours are? Do you know what your common idols are? Do you know how to identify those? Do you know what to do with those? How do you keep from something that you don't know? So, let's be honest. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. You write down some answers. Maybe we can identify some some idols. I'm just going to share the misery I've been dealing with all week. So let's just move on. First question. What are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of? What is the greatest fear? If this happens, if I lose this, no hope. Despair. That will probably show you an idol. 
What do you, what do you long for? What are you most passionate about? What do you, what do you really care about? What captures your thoughts? What are you motivated by? Seriously, what's the one thing that just gets your motor going in the morning? Motivates you to put your pants on and head out the door. What is it? Be careful. Be very careful. Where do you run for comfort? When life squeezes you from all angles, where do you run? Just click on 55 inches of plasma and veg out. Don't talk to me, kids. Watching the ball game. What is it? What is it that you run to? When life squeezes you, food, sex, drugs, alcohol, anger, despair, what is it? What do you run to? Your idols are anything that you fear more than God, that you are more passionate about than you are God, and that you run to and turn to other than God. Those are your idols. And Paul is just said, I do not want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be a dummy. Flee. Flee. The gospel has set you free that you might worship God and him alone. That you might once again fulfill the great two commandments. Exodus 34, 14 says, You shall not worship any other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And I think that was ringing in Paul's mind when he wrote the last verse of our passage today. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The beauty today is that if you will take the step to identify these idols, you will repent, confess them to the people in your small group, and flee from them. God, who is rich in mercy, has given you everything you need. He has sent his son to rescue you from your idols. He has put all of the wages of sin, all the things that sin produces in our lives and the wrath of God, the judgment of those things, he's taken all of those on for you. He has done immeasurably more than parting a Red Sea and throwing a little manna down from heaven. 
He has given you everything you need. He has given you a way out of your idolatry. He has given you a spirit of God that will indwell you and empower you so that you can turn from temptation. He has given you everything you need. The question is, will you worship well? So as we pray, if God is pressing on you, first step, lay the idols down. Identify them. Come down here, pray. Come talk to one of us down front. Whatever that next step is, whatever God's pushing on you, do that. Be obedient. Walk it out in worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the fact that you have rescued us, that we are the great Exodus people. The question is, how will we worship you now? Will we worship you in spirit and in truth? Will we worship you above all things? Will we put our idols to death that we might worship the one true God? Help us do that today, Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.